Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And in this episode, we'll be looking at Demosthenes, one of several Athenian statesmen who oversaw the last gasp of Athenian freedom before permanent Macedonian conquest. In Plutarch's estimation, his bravery in battle never matched his eloquence, so his defiance of Macedonian encroachment failed because he couldn't back it up with force. Now considered the greatest of the orators the Greeks ever produced, his parallel Cicero took him as his greatest model, and both men witnessed and fought against the destruction of the free system of government and the rule of law into which they had been born. So Demosthenes' life generally goes chronologically, which isn't always the case for Plutarch, but he introduces both Cicero and Demosthenes at the beginning, and then has a separate section in which he parallels them at the end. So he saw their parallel as particularly close, but in this, in his own proem before he's even started Demosthenes' life, we get a lot of personal information about Plutarch, which I think is really cool. We get the fact that Plutarch has chosen to live in Chironea on purpose, and that he learned Latin at a late age. The reason he tells us he learned Latin late and not very well is as an excuse as to why he's not. this won't be a rhetorical analysis of two of the greatest speakers of Greece and Rome. He says, I'm not, I'm not here to analyze their style, and I'm not here to help you analyze their style. He actually thinks it's sort of prideful to assume that you can unless you're as good as they were. The second thing he says, though, is what makes a good city for research? I'll just read the whole thing. If any man undertake to write a history that has to be collected from materials gathered by observation and the reading of works not easy to be got in all places, nor written always in his own language, but many of them foreign and dispersed into other hands, for him undoubtedly it is in the first place and above all things most necessary to reside in some city of good note, addicted to the liberal arts and populace. That definitely seems to be describing Athens. It might be describing Rome, but it is highly unlikely that Plutarch here means Delphi and Chironea, which were the only two cities in which he spent the majority of his life, where you would really consider him a resident instead of just a student or a visitor. So I, I find that really interesting and, and very telling. But the most beautiful line is where he ends by defending why he has decided to stay in Chironea, which is... I live in a little town, where I am willing to continue, lest it should grow smaller. That's it. He wants Chironea to remain good. He knows it's not great, but he wants it to remain good, so he's not going to give up on it. I just think that's really cool. Respect, Plutarch. But there's really four major episodes that we'll look at in Plutarch's life of Demosthenes, and they tend to happen chronologically. We have the rise to the political power and the struggle to gain speaking ability that go hand in hand. Demosthenes is not a natural-born genius who walks into the law courts or walks into the Athenian assembly and immediately convinces everybody that he's right and has them all praising him. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite happens. But once he has worked that out, the Macedonian power in the north seems to be rising under this guy named Philip, who's consolidating his power and moving first against the Athenian allies, then against Athenian colonies, and finally marching on Thebes and Athens themselves. 
And that ends pretty badly for everybody in the Battle of Chironea, in which Philip gets full control over Thebes and Athens. But a couple of years later, he dies, and Alexander, his son, not yet having earned the title the Great, takes over, and Demosthenes finds himself at the lowest level of his power and influence because not only does Alexander reassert control over Thebes and Athens and Corinth, but he demands that Demosthenes be exiled. And Demosthenes is. Demosthenes actually is almost ordered to be put to death by Alexander. So Alexander dies eventually too in the east, in Babylon. And then we have the successors of Alexander, one of whom is Antipater, who had ruled as a regent for Philip while Philip was on his campaigns and had ruled as a regent for Alexander while Alexander was on his campaigns. And so Antipater comes down after the Greek Poles revolt for the third time against Macedonian power, he ends it with an iron fist. He comes down and demands that Demosthenes be killed. So let's take a look at this. The Athenians really, I mean, the reason I call it the last gasp is because they really tried each time there was an opportunity. But the most important time when they could have listened to Demosthenes and united around him, we'll see when we study some of the other lives, particularly Phocion, that the Athenian political powers couldn't even unite against the common foe, Philip. So Demosthenes starts off life as an orphan. He's disadvantaged. And he actually is so young that he's taken advantage of by his guardians who basically steal anything he was supposed to inherit. This is his first foray into law. He has to fight for his own property to get it back to get back what's rightfully his and he fails his early attempts at public speeches also fail because the Athenians don't listen so he if he fails in court and he fails before the assembly one of his biggest failings is that he sounds antiquated they compare him his fellow Athenians compare him to Pericles who died 75 years before Demosthenes takes the bima this drives Demosthenes to want to practice and improve. I find some of the things he does are super cool. One of the things he does, he runs while he talks to keep his breath up. The cardiovascular intensity reminds me of the only story I've ever heard that's even close to this, is that Beyonce would run and sing at the same time so that her vocals were not influenced by her dancing. He puts pebbles in his mouth to enunciate and perhaps even to fix a stammer, forcing him to open his mouth widely and pronounce things correctly. And he even practices in front of a mirror. Some of these things are still encouraged, like practicing in front of a mirror is a standard Toastmasters piece of advice. But he even has a really strong work ethic. His work ethic is amazing. He forces himself to keep working by shaving half of his beard. You might be asking yourself, why would shaving half his beard force himself to work? Because he can't go out in public. So what else is he going to do? Well, he's stuck at home to work. That reminds me of the story they tell about Alexander Dumas, who was, I guess, notoriously bad at hitting deadlines. So he would have his wife hide all his clothes, except for his dressing gown. And so he couldn't even receive guests at his house, much less go out in public, so all he had to do was work, and that's how he finished his books. 
that whether or not it's true is a great and believable story because you often wonder how did Dumas write so many thousands of pages, but... Demosthenes used a similar technique without the dressing gown by just shaving half his beard. And the last thing he does is, is the thing that I've often heard addressed as uh, advice to writers. He's imitating people as he sees them in real life and constantly working on his craft. He will take people's speeches and try to unpack the logic of them in his head. He'll hear and overhear an argument in the street and he'll give all the reasons he can think of for and all the reasons he can think of against for the argument he's overhearing. So Plutarch tells us that he always came prepared and rarely, if ever, spoke impromptu, which is a sharp contrast to one of his fellow politicians of his era, Demides, whose speeches do not survive, probably because he never wrote them down. And so there's an element here where we're we're asking, one of the historical truisms that we're all supposed to believe and never reject is that history is written by the victors. And I think it's interesting in these first few lives that I have chosen, with the exception of Cato the Elder, I cannot think of a true winner. Solon's laws give way to tyranny for 50 years. Demosthenes watches a free Athens sink into slavery. And Cicero watches the Roman Republic disappear to be replaced by a principate, the power in the hands of one man. So, to me, I find it so intriguing that history was written by those victors, supposedly. The people who beat Solon, the people who beat Demosthenes, the people who beat Cicero. And yet, we hear more from Solon, Demosthenes, and Cicero simply because they wrote it down. And other people thought it was worth preserving and copying down and handing down. So I question the truism that history is always written by the victors. And I think Plutarch would want us to, too. He seems to favor this preparation over this spontaneous speaking. You may have little victories in your particular polis, but what about the overall victory for truth? The overall victory for what is good, what is right, what is beautiful? He says that preparing well shows a respect for the audience, whereas spontaneous speaking seems to emphasize force over persuasion and is thus of an oligarchical temperament. There were a lot of famous speakers around Athens at this time. Demosthenes actually is on a list of the 10 Attic orators, all from Attica, almost all from this century, and all famous for their speaking skills. Many of them were alive at the same time as Demosthenes, and some of their speeches are preserved. One of them was his famous enemy, Aeschines, three of whose speeches are preserved. And one of the reasons those three speeches are preserved is because all three speeches are leveled against Demosthenes. Demides is one of the other ones, but his works don't survive, so it's tough to compare Demosthenes to somebody whose work we don't have. Plutarch also admires his work ethic. There's not a sense that he should have been born with this natural ability. right? He learned to speak by working hard rather than natural genius, Plutarch says. So that gets him respect both in the assembly and in the private law courts. He starts writing speeches for clients. In ancient Athenian law, you were not allowed to 
hire a lawyer to represent you in court, you had to represent yourself. But you could have a lawyer write your speech for you, which gave you a certain amount of advantage if you could stack the evidence and testimony in your favor and get the emotional side of the story, control the narrative, so to speak, so the jury was on your side. So he's come up and he's definitely one of the leading citizens in Athens. But around the 350 BC mark, we see Philip come on the scene. And this is really what what Demosthenes is now going to define his public political career against. He rises in his resistance to Philip. He excited attention everywhere for his eloquence and courage in speaking. As Philip rises, Demosthenes hardens his resistance. And all of this ends at the Battle of Chironea, where Demosthenes had by that time blinded himself to the oracles around him, mistrusted even the oracle at Delphi, believing Philip to have political control over it, which Plutarch doesn't completely discount that possibility, and Demosthenes suffers his first major political, personal setback, which is that he is with the Athenians about to fight in the Battle of Chironea, and he runs away. He leaves his arms behind him, and his shield was inscribed with the phrase, With good fortune, Demosthenes is no soldier. Even more shockingly, the people choose him to deliver the funeral oration for those who died in Chironea. This is so unexpected, and he does, and many people think that his speech survives. So when we think of funeral orations, we think of Pericles funeral oration over the dead from the Peloponnesian War. That is a very famous speech about the glory of Athens. This is probably the second most famous of the funeral orations. Isocrates also has one. And it's this speech, or this action, I guess we could say, that draws the attention of Persia, and Darius III starts to give Demosthenes money and support seeing him as a powerful ally against Philip. Because what's going to happen? Once Philip of Macedon has conquered Thrace and Greece, who knows whether he's going to turn east, Persia, or west. So the next phase brings us to Alexander and the exile. Two years after the Battle of Chironea, Philip of Macedon is dead. So he has crushed the Theban and Athenian resistance, only to watch it rise in his death. Philip of Macedon is not only dead, he's assassinated. So all of the Athenians, including Demosthenes, celebrate wildly. One of Demosthenes' political enemies disapproves of his celebration because Demosthenes' own daughter had died a week earlier. Plutarch has has a great aside on whether or not it's more important to celebrate public goods or to sorrow for private losses and the ways in which it's appropriate to grieve. Demosthenes gathers up as many of the free Greek cities as are interested in a league against Alexander, and it is so utterly crushed that this time, instead of just losing a battle and everybody being forgiven, Thebes, the city just north of Athens in Boeotia, is burned to the ground. Everything in Thebes is burned to the ground except for the temples, and the house of one poet named Pindar. The orators, right, which everybody knows are the leaders of 
the Athenian democracy, so the famous speakers are demanded as hostages for Alexander. But Demides convinces Alexander, he goes as an ambassador to Alexander and convinces Alexander to forgive them, which he does. But a little bit more political intrigue is going to go on because all of these enemies of Demosthenes have also been forgiven with that. One of these political enemies is Aeschines, whom we've mentioned before. And Aeschines brings Demosthenes to trial, saying that Demosthenes does not deserve some of the honors that the Athenians have voted for him in the past. And Demosthenes so successfully defends himself that Aeschines has to leave Athens in shame and never never returns. You might be wondering, why on earth would losing one case force Aeschines to leave? And part of it is that so little of the jury agreed with Aeschines that he himself was given a punishment. So if you brought someone to trial and you lost and more than 80% of the jury agreed with the defendant rather than you, the prosecutor, you were actually fined because essentially you were seen as somebody who wasn't seeking justice. You were just trying to get even with somebody. And it became so obvious that in these large jury numbers, 500 jury members, or you couldn't even get 20% of them to side with you, then you yourself were punished. And so to avoid the punishment, Aeschines skips town leaves Athens, goes to Rhodes, and never returns. So at least one of Demosthenes' enemies is politically defeated in Demosthenes' lifetime. Unfortunately, not all of them. And then there's this story about Harpalus. Harpalus was a friend of Alexander's who was put in charge of Asia Minor. Now, this guy had an uh, had a reputation already for embezzling money, just fleeing the scene with large amounts of money. And the second time he does this, he comes to Athens. So the Athenians already know his reputation. He's run away with a lot of money before, and he demands sanctuary. He ultimately demands that he they treat him like a political exile. And obviously the politicians in Athens are split as to what they do, what to do, because he arrives with so much money, and he's willing to share. So knowing that the best use of his money is to invest in the few politicians that actually have power he essentially starts offering bribes. The people trust Demosthenes to be the most honest about this, and so they put him in charge. But during the debates, he suddenly goes silent. This is according to Plutarch. He resists exiling Harpalus, but the Athenian people do so anyway, and he suggests that they bring the matter before the highest court in Athens, the court of the Areopagus. The problem is that they do exactly that, and the court of the Areopagus finds Demosthenes guilty, finds him 50 talents, and sentences him to prison. There was an understanding that if you didn't want to go to prison, you could just leave Attica, and as long as you were outside of Attica, the Athenians didn't care where you were. So essentially, Demosthenes chooses self-imposed exile. He handles exile poorly, as I think a lot of us would. He's depressed. He discourages young men who come to him for advice from ever entering politics. And the only thing that allows him to return from his exile is that Alexander the Great dies in Babylon. So Alexander's successor, Antipater, is now looking at the Athenians in particular to see what they're going to do. 
Demosthenes, as he's recalled from exile, he's welcomed into the city with so much rejoicing, like he's a hero. He didn't go far. He went to the island of Aegina, which is on the other side of the Saronic Gulf. But he he pulls into the port of Athens, which is the Piraeus, and they accompany him all the way from the port, all the way up, it's about a mile, to the uh, Acropolis. And Plutarch tells us that he received a more honorable reception than anybody since Alcibiades, and maybe even more grand than the reception that Alcibiades received. I just plant that seed because when we do the life of Alcibiades, that'll be a really important scene. He still has to repay this fine, though, the fine for 50 talents. But the Athenian people even find a way around that. They can't legally just forgive him of the fine. So they appoint him to a religious position and then give him 50 talents of the public funds in order to fulfill his religious obligation as a, you know, overseer of a certain ceremony. So he probably promptly takes the 50 talents and uses it to pay off his fine. Now it's interesting because Demides, that same guy who had gone up to Alexander and begged for the lives of all the orators of Athens, is now working closely with Antipater and his son Cassander. So this same man that had saved Demosthenes from Alexander's wrath now brings forward the motion for his death to the, into the assembly. And Demosthenes once again flees the city. He goes across the Saronic Gulf to Troizen, and he holds himself up in a temple of Neptune. He is one of the last orators that the men of Antipater are able to find. So they've hunted down every other one, and they've chopped their heads off. For one of them, they even chopped his tongue off. And Demosthenes is, is claiming sanctuary in this temple of Neptune, and he has a dream there that he is a tragic poet who loses to the messenger that Antipater has sent in the tragic festival. So the tragic festival always had, you showed three tragedies over three days and then you ranked them first, second, and third. He comes in second to this man who's been sent to kill him. But he doesn't lose because of the tragedy he wrote. He loses because his sets and costumes aren't as sumptuous, aren't as ornate. And so the question you have here is, what does this dream mean? Plutarch is big on reporting dreams and oracles. And he is also not going to interpret them for you necessarily. The man that Antipater has sent to kill him arrives, his murderer essentially. And he buys some time by bandying words back and forth. And then he asks permission finally to write a letter. And in ancient Greece, if you were writing on papyrus, you would write with a pen that was just a hollow reed pen and you would pick up ink in it from an inkwell. So he takes the pen as if he's going to think and put the pen in his mouth, as we still do. But he has hidden some poison in the top of the pen, the hollow part of the top of the pen. And he sucks the poison out. And he knows that he's going to die. And Antipater and his henchmen will not be able to kill him. So with his dying breath, he asks Poseidon to avenge the Macedonians for their impiety, for killing him in a temple, and then leaves the temple so that he himself will not stain the temple to die before the altar, as Plutarch tells us. It's important to remember that altars were outside of the temple for pagans because altars were a place where a lot of messy animal sacrifice happened. And so you needed and wanted a place where it would be easy to wash away blood and and have things light on fire and open air for the smells. And so him dying before the altar does mean that he made it out of the temple. But he asks Poseidon to avenge the Macedonians for their impiety. And it's it's interesting because Plutarch, again, 
not going to give us the answer, but perhaps the vengeance of the Macedonians comes in the form of the Roman legions 150 years later. So what is Demosthenes' legacy? The Athenians have erected a statue of him in brass. The inscription is quite telling. It says, had you been for Greece this strong, as wise you were, the Macedonians had not conquered her. Uh, then he actually ends the life of Demosthenes by telling us what happens to his enemy, Demides. Demides, who had turned traitor, playing off the different successors of Alexander, struggles with exactly that. Cassander, the son of Antipater, discovers that Demides is sort of playing both sides, trying to figure out which of the successors of Alexander is actually the most powerful, and he kills Demides in a particularly cruel way, murdering his young son while Demides holds him, and then killing Demides. Plutarch takes that, though, and draws the lesson for us, saying that traitors who sell their own country sell themselves first. So Demides was far too self-interested to count as a statesman. So, big picture. There's some fun questions that Demosthenes' life brings up. The first is the eternal question, is it hard work or is it genius? Plutarch seems to come down squarely on the fact that Demosthenes was a great speaker, not because of a lot of inborn talent, but because of hard work. So you have a lot of people coming around to that conclusion again now, the 10,000 hour rule and a number of different books and popular books. But I, I think that debate will never fully be settled, which is exactly why it's such a fun question to ask. It's probably a both and, but nobody knows which comes first, the genius or the hard work. Uh, Demosthenes flees in Chironea, but he's still allowed to give a funeral oration over the fallen. There are some odd, odd things like that that happen in history. You know, someone can be a coward, a draft dodger, and then later treated like a hero. I won't name names, but it's just interesting. He's admired for his constancy, and a lot of people have really done the research and tried to dig in to see if he actually received that bribe. Plutarch thinks he does. So when you read the life of Demosthenes from Plutarch's perspective, there are a lot of people who think he accepted the bribe from Harpalus and deserved the 50-talent fine and the, and the exile that he received. But many, many modern scholars have read all the speeches and don't agree with Plutarch's conclusion. So I think that's a fun thing to look into. In, in this, though, Plutarch is still admiring his virtue which, you know, him not receiving the bribe would make him far more consistent because he says that all of his orations have one goal, to encourage people to choose the honest and virtuous action for itself. Plutarch implies in this life that it's divinely willed for Greece to fall. That's a great question to ask. In what way was it divinely willed for Greece to fall? In what way did Greece fall? We remember Alexander and Philip and Demosthenes all equally together, the losers and the winners. Another great question is the public good versus private misfortune, which is brought up in the Demosthenes story about the death of his daughter. Uh, the appropriateness of celebrating the death of an enemy. When an enemy dies, what is the appropriate way to be glad that the effects they can no longer be the cause of, right? The evil effects on our country they can no longer be the cause of. I think of when I lived through the death of Osama bin Laden, I thought about that a lot. An evil man who had done a great deal of harm, but in what way would it have been appropriate for me to be glad that he was dead? 
So Demosthenes is a fascinating character. I hope this has inspired you to read more about his life. And so that about wraps it for this episode. You can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast or check us out at plutarch.life. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts as that will help other people find it. Thanks as always for listening and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours. 